Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 650 of the podcast and it is Friday the 14th of October 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Maria Brito about creativity, how curiosity is the fuel for our creative work, keeping the balance between consumption and creation, input and output, the complex relationship between money and art, and why our creative work is so important, not just for our individual human flourishing, but also for the world. So that is coming up in the interview section. In publishing news, well, there is a great article about Colleen Hoover in the New York Times this week. And I know it's not so much publishing, but she really is a great success story. And I wanted to pick a few things out from the article. She has sold more than 8.6 million books this year, more copies than the Bible, as well as James Patterson. (laughs) She holds six of the 10 top 10 spots on the New York Times paperback fiction bestseller list, a stunning number, these are quotes from the New York Times, a stunning number of simultaneous bestsellers from a single author. So what's lovely, and I I remember when she got her first deal because um, Colleen self-published her first young adult novel, Slammed, in January 2012. At the time, she was making $9 an hour as a social worker, living in a single wide trailer with her husband, a long-distance truck driver, and their three sons. She was elated when she made $30 in royalties because it was enough to pay the water bill. So I really love hearing, I didn't know the background that Colleen came from. And I think this is part of why she is so successful. Her books tap into what people feel in their lives. And yeah, so anyway, this article, I so much of the mainstream media kind of has a go at authors like this. But this article is actually very good, I thought. It says, Hoover 42 didn't have a publisher, an agent or any of the usual marketing machinery. Seven months later, Slammed hit the New York Times bestseller list. Her fans, mostly women who call themselves cohorts and post gushing reactions to her book's devastating climaxes. And this is what I definitely heard about her. And To be fair, I have tried to read a couple of these books. Um, I'm still trying because she also writes all over the place. She's written romances, a steamy psychological thriller, ghost story, uh, novels about domestic violence, drug abuse, homelessness, poverty... Most of them have an addictive combination of sex, drama and outrageous plot twists. <laughs> so, uh, And there's a quote, uh, Colleen says, I kept being told that authors need to brand themselves as one thing. And I was like, well, why can't I brand myself as everything? Why can't I just brand myself as Colleen Hoover? And she has indeed done that. And that's just brilliant. I love that. She did start self-publishing and has continued to do so on occasion, but has also struck deals with multiple publishers, sometimes selling print rights and keeping the ebook rights. She's currently under contract to release six books with three publishers over the next five years. 
Obviously, they note her use of social media, where she has 3.9 million followers across her platforms. But she says she suffers from the worst case of imposter syndrome in the world. She says, I read other people's books and I'm so envious, thinking, oh my goodness, these are so much better. Why are mine selling the way they are? (laughs) So I love this because, of course, better is in the mind of the reader and the emotions of the reader. And clearly, Colleen's readers love her. (laughs) Also, this brings to mind the PRH Penguin Random House court case recently with the Department of Justice, where the CEO basically said that the random in Random House was because book publishing is so random. (laughs) This quote was just fascinating that essentially, we don't know. Now, the article goes on to say, Hoover's sales really started to pick up in the spring of 2020 when she made five of her ebooks free. Readers devoured the free novels and started buying her backlist. So anyone who says free books don't work anymore, <laughs> there you go. Hoover thought it was a fleeting moment, but it persisted. And this is another key because you can market your way to the top of a bestseller chart, but you cannot make this kind of viral hit unless your books are amazing. And it's not just one book, it's loads of her books. She has a a tone that clearly people love, a voice that people love. Then came the TikTok videos. And uh, fame has come as a shock to Hoover, who is almost painfully introverted and dislikes being in the spotlight. So it was it was actually lovely to read that because I did I have watched a few of her TikTok videos and uh, just thought maybe she was used to everything and was dealing with it all. But this article, she really came across as a, a sort of real person who struggles with the fame side. And apparently she chats to E.L. James <laughs> about sort of sudden fame and what that might mean. And yeah, the overwhelming sense from her books, I guess a bit like Stephen King, is this tapping into the lives of people, ordinary people who have difficult times. And so, yeah, clearly she's hitting a real chord. And the, the, I guess the thing for me is to look at her books as, as craft and to think about tapping into that, those emotional things. I know personally, I get so into all the things I learn and I want to have research and I'm, I'm really interested in all that in the books I read. Um, but definitely I'm very interested in, in writing more emotionally. But you can't manufacture this kind of success. All you can do is keep writing what you love, keep trying to touch the hearts of readers, I guess. And uh, and then, of course, timing is another thing. Colleen definitely had some timing going for her there, but you can't manufacture that. So that's just great to read that article that's in the New York Times. Link's in the show notes as ever. Now, I also wanted to mention in terms of publishing, the Kindlepreneur blog has a good roundup of some of the bugs that Amazon seems to have right now around pricing and categories. Now, I don't normally mention this type of thing. As I said, I'm recording this 14th of October 2022. The reason I don't sort of talk about these things normally is because I come from a software background. I worked in software for more than a decade before getting into being a writer. And I know what software companies have to do. So when there are bugs and uh, the Kindlepreneur, I'll link to it in the show notes again, but it's at kindlepreneur.com. There's a few things and I know what will happen, which is they'll get lots of reports of them. Then they will fix it. Then they'll roll out the fix. And these things take a bit of, uh, of iteration. And yeah, it's bad for some people because sales get hit or whatever. And then it's back to the way it was. Um, but the Facebook groups are all a buzz. I've had emails from a number of people going, oh, you must talk about how 
how bad Amazon is. But uh, to be fair, it's a software company. <laughs> they put through stuff and a lot of stuff benefits us. A lot of stuff doesn't. So I would just say check things, but you know, it will it will get fixed and the furore will die down. And yeah, it's just another reason to have multiple streams of income. I know it's affected some people, but I'm sure it will be probably even fixed by the time this goes out. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention, so many things going on right now. It's in, it, crazy. Now, usually I'd have this in the futurist segment, but my futurist segment is, is crossing over into the publishing segment. Ingram just invested in book.io. So this is Ingram, who own Ingram Spark, their Ingram content group. I think they're, you know, the bigger one. They print books, they print physical books. And they've just invested in book.io, an NFT marketplace for buying, reading and selling ebooks and audiobooks. Now, this is underpinned by the idea of the digital asset. Readers should own the digital goods in the, the ebooks and audiobooks they buy. And remember, you don't own any of the ebooks on your e-readers when they are uh, from the big companies, even if you have many thousands as I do. And in fact, even if you buy direct from me, you don't own that. There is no license right now where you can resell an ebook that you buy direct from me. But when we use NFTs, we'll be able to do that. So digital assets are going to become even more important in a world of abundance. And I've talked about this several times on the show. Many of you have told me to shut up. <laughs> but I think special editions of digital products are just so important. So as well as special edition print that we're selling direct, uh, I think special digital editions and special digital products are going to be important. Now, book.io is powered by the Cardano blockchain, which is one of the blockchains favoured by a lot of the artistic community. So if you're ready to consider the possibilities for authors, and I do think that this investment by Ingram, the partnership is really interesting. They have this idea of mint and print. So you mint your NFT, which is you sort of you publish your NFT ebook or your audiobook, but you can also print. So I think the the partnership is fantastic. Uh, I'm going to find out more about that. But yes, uh, check out my solo episode 610 from earlier this year. So March 2022, you can just scroll back through your feed. It's a solo show where I do like a presentation. I go into creativity, collaboration, community and cash, where I go into all the different possibilities of NFTs for authors. And uh, it definitely feels like it's starting to head towards more possibly mainstream next year, but probably a couple of years. I've also been speaking, you know, I am going to speak on a panel about NFTs for books at NFT London on Friday, the 4th of November. And I'm going to have Jay Thorne back on the show after that, as he's also into blockchain, uh, more primarily for music, but we'll be talking about that. So uh, yeah, NFTs not going away. And Ingram, who uh, sort of known as one of the most traditional, I guess, in the um, print space, that is a really interesting purchase. So in my personal update, I was in London. I went to the Wired conference this week. And if you ever need hope about the world, then please do read the Wired magazine. It's really good. It's full of evidence that lots of humans are working on trying to save the planet and solve really big problems. I feel like sometimes in the author world, things sort of go right down to the minutiae of stuff and focusing on selling things, which look, let's face it, buying and selling and entertainment it's all great it's what it's the industry we're in but a lot of this stuff i find uh it's it's good to get out of it and in fact going to 
a full day conference somewhere else on completely different topics is great. And going to things outside our writing niche is so important and ties into what Maria says later in the show, that creative people are curious. And sometimes the ideas that help us come out from outside our sphere of knowledge. So I went to loads of sessions, including quantum computing and simulation, which I may talk about at some point, (laughs) particle physics, millennial women, hacking and cybersecurity, starting a company in the pandemic, the metaverse, Web3, social commerce and more. So some of it was way, way out and some of it was much closer. So I've got pages of notes, but I don't want to overwhelm you. I wanted to share a couple of things that are more about attitude and tie into this interview about creativity. So Dr. Susie Sheehy, who is a particle physicist, did a great talk about the importance of doing experiments and following your curiosity, even if you can't see where it might lead or whether it may ever pay off. This is so critical, I think, in an era where we we think about sales. And yes, we have to think about sales and business, but we also have to follow our curiosity and write things and create things where we just don't know where it will go. We just don't know. Uh, If we don't know where we're going to market it, whether it will ever sell, sometimes it doesn't matter. So my pilgrimage book comes to mind, I guess, Colleen Hoover had no idea uh, that when writing the book she's written, that she would one day become this huge hit. Uh, and of course, we talked about before, Kate Bush with Running Up That Hill, uh, a bestseller, huge, huge musical hit after Stranger Things used it. And it's like 30 years, 30 plus years after she released that. And she's an independent musician. So she got all of that, which is amazing. But yes, Susie Sheehy. And it was it was good to listen to a talk about science that actually relates to us as, as writers. Susie's book is The Matter of Everything, 12 Experiments That Changed Our World. I was also empowered and wanted to share this with you because a Tim Ber- Sir Tim Berners-Lee spoke with his new business partner about Solid, uh, a new technology for building an open, accessible and limitless web. He calls it Web 3.0, but it's not Web 3, so it's not blockchain, basically. Tim is best known as the inventor of the World Wide Web, and he did that in the late 80s, but he hasn't stopped. I mean, dude could have just sat down and enjoyed his reputation, but no, in his late 60s, he's founded another company to try and correct the silos of big tech. He wants a um, yeah this open accessible limitless web and taking the power away and giving the power back to the people so you would own your own data for example he is reinventing things he's trying to change the world all over again and just him being there on stage talking about this stuff made me very enthusiastic and I am not someone who can just write, publish, repeat. (laughs) That's just not me. I do need to look into the future and see where things are going and consider how I might change things in my own area, share things with you. But also, can I be part of of something bigger? Can We don't just have to accept the status quo. We can be part of changing things. So yeah, Jeff Bezos, as ever, says every day is day one. It's always day one. We can always make a new start. We can always change things. And yeah, that is echoed in the discussion with Maria about curiosity. So my question for you this week is, are you still curious? 
And if you're not, how can you find that spark again? I must say, I go to the Wired conferences and I am totally sparked. I had lunch with my friend Orna Ross from the Alliance of Independent Authors and she's like, oh, I love seeing you after you go to Wired because you're just like like wired, basically wired up and sparked up by all these new things. And the energy that I find from ideas is is incredible. So how can you make it day one again as an author, either in refinding the joy in your creativity or just creating something for the sake of creating it, even if you don't know the outcome? I think that's pretty exciting. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments. Natalie says, I love, love, loved your interview with Beth Kempton. Here's why. In the midst of narrating my own indie published book, I've been obsessing over over the little mistakes, mostly typos here and there, fretting about whether I should update the digital and physical book to bring it to divine perfection. (laughs) Listening to your conversation helped ease the pressure. I'll keep narrating and fix the typos later. Actually, Natalie's got a good point there. If you narrate your own book, you find so many problems. I do. This is why it's quite good to try and get it out at the same time, because it's almost like a last pass. But but yeah, I totally get you there, Natalie. And Billy Joe said, stellar interview. I'm unlikely to write in the summer and then I feel shame about it. I'm going to employ Kempton's season technique and schedule my writing in fall through early spring. Thanks for that. And finally, A.D. Davis uh, left a comment on the show notes for the AI art episode, which only went out this morning as I am recording this. He asked for, or he or she, sorry, A.D., not sure, they asked for a further clarification on the copyright issue of using AI-generated art, which I talked about with Derek in the interview. But what, what is so fascinating to me is that Microsoft incorporating DALL-E 2 into their designer software means that Microsoft's lawyers will be sorting this out because they cannot roll this out without having sorted out the copyright of this because what they're essentially saying is anyone with Microsoft 365 and has access to whatever their new, I think it's actually just called designer, but whatever that tool is, means that they will be creating images using these AI tools. So yeah, they really have to have sorted this out. Um, Also really interesting, Microsoft from being a fuddy-duddy company is really going for it now in these new directions. They just uh, today or yesterday announced a partnership with Meta. So obviously the company that used to be Facebook, Meta, to bring the metaverse to enterprise. So if you work on Microsoft Teams right now, and many of you listening will work on Microsoft Teams, Jonathan, my husband, sits upstairs. He works from home from the loft and he does all his work on Microsoft Teams uh, with, you know, he manages his team and stuff and he wears this headset and they're always on calls. In fact, he's on one right now. But this will, the, the stuff they have, and I'll link to it in the notes again, this was announced at Meta Connect 2022. But essentially, this partnership will mean that instead of an earpiece headset, it might be a headset headset and a, a VR. And you'll be working in a private metaverse, an enterprise metaverse. So that makes total sense to me. I can, I totally can see how that will work. And this is where the idea, there is the metaverse is like the internet. There is no single internet. There will not be a single metaverse. Everyone will have, there'll be lots of different metaverses, basically. So yeah, interesting times. But 
Again, going to Wired, remember a lot of the stuff I talk about, I skew towards authors because that's what this show is about. But most of this technology is being used in the whole rest of the world. So it's far more likely that, especially if you have some kind of office-y type job, you will be using uh, a headset with uh, Microsoft Teams before you use it in any kind of sense as an author. So I think that's, that's really interesting. And then finally, thanks to Mr. Lick or Mr. Lish, who says, I've been an avid listener for a long time. For my day job, I travel all over the US and Canada and sent me a lovely picture, the most scenic graveyard I've ever seen from a coastal graveyard in Newfoundland or Newfoundland, I think that might be the way to pronounce it. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much. Remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen, send me pictures of where you're listening or email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and the team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. Right now, digital books are reaching people more than ever and libraries are becoming an integral part of that. In 2021, top digital library systems powered by Overdrive loaned 500 million books, an increase of 16% on 2020. That's half a billion book loans, which means a lot of happy library readers. You can easily reach library readers through Kobo Writing Life. Just go to the Rights and Distribution section of your book, click Yes to Overdrive and enter a library price. Your book will be available to librarians to purchase for multi-loan use, but also for a one-time checkout option. Distributing with KWL means you're not paying any aggregator fee and you'll earn 50% on every library sale. If you're interested in taking part in library promotions, email KWL's dedicated author care team at writinglife@kobo.com and they'll add you to their mailing list. And don't forget to tell your readers they can pick up your book in libraries. Which reminds me, if you would like my books in your library in ebook, print or audiobook, just ask your librarian to order it from their catalogue. And if you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social media. Create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. And as ever, I use Kobo Writing Life to go to Kobo and uh, really love the things they offer authors. They have a promotions tab, which you can also email the team and ask about writing life at kobo.com. Ask for the promotions tab if you don't have that. And that is how a lot of us with box sets, particularly for fiction, uh, some of the best promotional things for Kobo. Right, this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time, especially my futurist episodes, are sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to new patrons this week, Christine Headley, Wayne Cameron and Paul Worthington. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. You are fantastic. And this this week with my patrons, I've been sharing some of my cover designs for the pilgrimage book and getting everyone's comments and really... <laughs> It's so valuable and I really enjoy the conversations we have. So thank you to patrons. And if you are a patron, I do the monthly Q&A audio answering your questions and that will be coming up probably in the next week. So you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. 
Maria Brito is an award-winning New York-based contemporary art advisor, entrepreneur, author, and curator. Her latest book is How Creativity Rules the World, The Art and Business of Turning Your Ideas into Gold. So welcome, Maria. Hi, Joanna, and everybody who's listening. I hope you are well anywhere you are in the world. Thank you for being here. Oh, yeah. And we do. We have listeners all over the world. Now, I wanted to take a step back. And you started out as a corporate attorney at a big law firm. And there are lots of people listening who are in day jobs in the corporate world. So how did you break out of such a high paying job, basically, to start (laughs) a creative business? How did you find that courage to pivot? Uh, Well, I think that once you feel the pain of being in a place like that, that you can't really think about anything else, but how do I get out of here and how do I reclaim my life? Because literally, I I feel that for all the many years that I was doing things that I just did not want to do, it's like I was losing my life, right? I was losing my my energy and my joy. And when I had my first child, which I was still working at the law firm, I thought to myself that life was short or long, but that I really had a different perspective once I had this child and I had to teach him, by example, how to live a life of joy and purpose and meaning. And I had been very, very interested in contemporary art and art history in general since I was a child, to be honest with you. And I had taken many courses in high school and in college as well. And when I moved to New York City after graduating from law school, collecting informally, like things that were young and emerging and fun. And that was always sort of like on the back of my mind, how to make people live with art and why is it so? And mind you, this was year when I quit my job and opened my business, that was 2009. So the art market in the art world were kind of very mysterious and seemed snobbish and impenetrable. And I thought to myself, well, I have been pondering these questions for a number of years now. How do people actually get into collecting and living with art and having the excitement of understanding artists through their ideas and their aesthetics without people getting so intimidated or people getting so kind of like feeling that they are being looked down when they stepped into a gallery? Or how do people demystify the thought that to be a collector, you have to be one of those people who go to Sotheby's and spend $10 million in a painting because the art market and the art world is a whole lot bigger than that. So all these preoccupations, along with the baby, gave me the impetus to say, I don't want to do something that is actually killing me alive, basically because If we talk about mental health today, back then we didn't really have those conversations, but Mm -hmm. I had them with my husband and I had them with my friends. And I said, this job is basically, and Nikki is like killing me, you know, is annealing Mm -hmm. everything. So I, all those factors, nothing really happens overnight because once you have arrived at a place where you say, I do need to quit this job to start something new. 
it's because you have been accumulating a lot of painful memories, moments, situations. It's not just like one day you wake up and you have a big epiphany. It's not like that. It's, it's, this is a long process. And for people who are listening, if you find yourself hating your day job, know that you're not alone and know that it takes courage and it takes time to plan for the big exit. exit. So if you can do it because you have been waiting for too long, I mean, I can tell you that there's never the right time to do it because you're always going to find whatever reasons. Our brains are very wired for preservation of safety and it's difficult for, for us to actually accept a change of circumstances that is so radical. But again, for me, it was just too painful to stay there. Yeah, and I really resonate with that. And I started writing sort of 2006, same as you. I was in so much pain. I was like crying at work every day. I just hated it. I hated, hated my job. And I know some people listening don't feel that way. They might love their job or at least tolerate their job. But I have heard from people listening that sometimes their job saps any form of creativity and I certainly felt like this when I used to implement accounts payable systems and I (laughs) I just did not have like I was like I am not creative there is nothing creative about me and it seems weird now to say that but I wonder if you could also I mean you have in the book there's lots of ideas but in terms of for people who are still in a corporate job how can they start to tap into what might be buried, their buried creativity? And if they feel they're not creative enough or they're struggling with their creativity, what are some of the ways they can find it again? Creativity is something from within. And I think that I made the point very clear in the book and in my life in general, that it really doesn't matter what you do, because let's say what the example or or the the type of frame you just gave. Some people are really happy with what they do, but they don't feel that they are creative, right? Mm. But the truth is every every job and every occupation can benefit from people who can have creative ideas and they can actually materialize them. So for me, creativity is your unique ability to come up with ideas of value that are relevant. And that actually can happen, right? Because a lot of ideas... Maybe you don't have the resources or maybe you don't have the team or the world is not ready yet, right? Like, I mean, how many years Elon Musk has been working on Mars and he has the resources and he has everything and still not happening, right? So the point is that creativity is not arts and crafts and it's not cutouts. It could be, but what it really is, is that ability that you have to come up with amazing ideas. And I don't, There's no single human being in the world who's not capable of this, bearing some disabilities, of course, but it's the place where people have gotten complacent about moving forward and presenting their ideas. Or also, there is such a high level of stimulus, right, like around us that are drowning our senses. We are consistently consuming social media and text and tweets and WhatsApp and noise. And people are crossing the streets, looking at their phones. And at the same time, they're listening to a podcast. And so all these things have taken our ability to think about, but to think on our feet and to actually be able to pay attention 
to the things around us that could make great moments to find this idea. So one of the the consensus among the people who are researchers and who are psychologists in the field of creativity is that the number one thing that everyone who is really creative has is curiosity. And you don't need to pay anybody to be curious and you don't need to be a painter in front of an easel or a writer writing fiction. You don't need to be Stephen King to be curious. You know what I mean? It's like people who develop passions outside of their job and inside of their jobs with curiosity are usually creative people, people who are just not happy to get whatever the media says, but they are digging deeply and saying, is there a contrary opinion to this? Or people who have a desire to go with deep research about a topic. And the topic could be anything. Those are usually the type of people who are best with coming up with ideas. And so, you know, find if if you feel that you're not creative at work, just find one or two or three things that you feel interested about and learn everything that you can about them. Or you could even just go and enroll yourself in one of those online courses that you can go at your own pace. And it's a completely different thing that you've never done before, right? Because that's the other thing. Uh, creative people usually are the ones who can absorb information from different disciplines and fields. That doesn't mean they have to be experts. And I love the idea of when we look back in history to a guy like Da Vinci, for example, who was just like one of the most curious men that we know about that was written about. Right. And so mm. he was like, I am into writing and math and parachutes and painting and developing new pigments. And I'm curious about the size of Milan and the perimeter that surrounds Rome and what can we do to get to France faster. So this was really a genius in, in, in it's funny because you know, Leonardo's been dead like 600 years and we talk about him. And when my kids come and tell me, mom, do you think that in 200 years people will be talking about Beyonce or Elon Musk? And I said, no, but we are going to be talking about Leonardo da Vinci because that is the legacy of someone who was truly immensely creative. And, and fortunately, he left us all, almost all of his diaries and his notes are still alive. So that is the beauty of, of creativity is that it's all from within. It's motivation. And that's the other thing. No amount of money can make anybody creative, but the motivation that you have from within to claim creativity for yourself and to put yourself in positions where you open up your mind to receive new concepts, to learn new things, to act on on different things that you haven't tried before that is the most magical space ever and that's why sometimes people are for example reading a book or watching a movie or watching a documentary and say well this does not apply to me because i am not in the art world or i'm not a scientist who's looking at the marine soil and uh, the middle of the oceans and things like that and i said you're wrong 
because the place that is most ripe with interesting ideas that you can adapt for you and your career or your business or your side gig or your writing or whatever is outside of what you are already an expert hmm. because we are very good at gathering information about our own businesses and our own industries about what's happening. We can, and that there's nothing wrong about being a fantastic expert in your field. But what that does also is that progressively you start developing blind spots because you're so freaking good at what you know, but then everything else that's happening in the world, you're sort of oblivious to. And that is where you find the most incredible ideas. Mm. Yeah, and actually, I really enjoyed your book because of that. I mean, I I like visual art. My dad, most of the rest of the people in my family are visual artists. So I know a lot about visual art and the artists you talk about in the book. So I found it really interesting that way. But you, you talk there about curiosity and about delving into areas that are not necessarily our area of expertise, but also about noise and too much consumption. And this is a really hard balance. And I mean, you only have to look at look at Twitter or pick up the news and you feel like we're in the midst of this sort of chaotic time. And mm -hmm. there's all this, especially in America. I mean, when I come to America, I'm like, I cannot watch your news. It's just so, so over the top and it's all crisis, crisis. <laughs> and, you know, and, and also in the book, you talk about your own difficult personal times. And so how do we balance this curiosity and needing to consume in the world and learn and be curious with taking the space to create our own thing because it's this balance isn't it between consumption yes. and creation i absolutely subscribe to the idea that we need a lot of silence in our lives right and so i have created my life around a lot of routines and routines are very, very good for creativity, even if the opposite sounds like, I mean, people would say, no, I just want to have crazy experiences each day. Yeah, sure, you can have that, but like make sure that you have a foundation, preferably in the morning where you start, or maybe you can't necessarily start your day with like meditation and whatnot. But I think that um, is very important if you carve out time to just be. Some people are very concerned about this, like meditation, and if they have to be in sitting down in lotus position with candles and incense and things like that, right? Because usually our minds so tend to go to far extremes in what we sort of like need to do, or the things that we are avoiding the most are usually the things that we need to do the most. So while I understand that the speed of life is not necessarily the type of life for everybody who you would say, let me just take 45 minutes every day, 20 in the morning, 20 at night and five in the middle to meditate. I think that it pays back with interest because it is that moment of calming the mind and allowing yourself to take the focus from everything that is happening around you. And I know a lot of people work in open spaces where are co-working buildings and things like that. And they are very, very distracting places. And I definitely respect because that might be the only option. But I think that anybody has some minutes of the day to practice 
a form of silence and meditation. Perhaps the meditation thing, as I said before, could be a lot of work for certain people, just sitting down with your ideas and contemplation without listening to much or without having to browse through the phone helps because there is a cumulative effect, right? I mean, if you do it one day, 10 day, the next day, sorry, one day in 10 minutes, the next day, five minutes, seven minutes or whatever, by the end of the week, maybe you have done 45 minutes in silence for the whole week. And some people practice like a Sunday where, you know, from 9am to 5pm, they are not going to check the phone, they are not going to turn on the TV, they are just going to try to perhaps read a couple of books, or they are just trying to take walks and be present to their families. Or if they live alone, then just like, you know, be doing other things that do not involve all this incredible amount of information. In some cases, it's really pollution. Like you said, mm-hmm. new, news news can be deceiving, over the top, super politicized. And so, you know, if I guess like if you really need to know something about the news, then you will. You know what I mean? It's, it's like I, I, <laughs> someone will tell you. Yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, I, I enjoy an excellent written article, long form. Could be New Yorker, it could be New York Times, but I don't really enjoy partisan journalism, right? Like, I mean, I know when somebody has an agenda. I'm old enough to know when I'm reading something and there is an entire political agenda behind it. And I also listen. I am worried about everything. I'm worried about Ukraine, Iran, China, all the things, but I just can't take them all on me, right? And so I I sometimes feel that certain people utilize all the things that are happening around them as a distraction not to do what they are meant to do. And I just have also to protect my own energy and space by saying there is only so much I can do about these things. It's not that I don't care. I very much care, but I also have a family to support and myself and protect my peace of mind and my mental health. And I just yeah. can't, can't, I can't partake of every cause. I can't take on every crusade. I can't, you know, so this is an, also an individual responsibility that we have. How much are we going to affect everything that's happening in the world? Take us, or can we actually take on a position that creates, it's also a creativity space for us that creates the good that we need for ourselves And that allows us to anchor our thoughts and our actions in the things that we want rather than all the things that we can't really change. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying, just to sort of recap there, you talked about meditation. I walk, so I don't sit and meditate, but I walk in nature and that's where I get but get my silence. So whatever people do, but what you said there, protect your space and you have to protect your kind of your physical time to create your mental space from that pollution and in order to do the thing you're meant to do. And I completely agree with you that we can use all of this as distraction. If we're going to create as a lifestyle, as a business even, then we have to make that space. And, our, and the other thing, I guess, what I loved about your book is that it's almost an acknowledgement that creativity and art is important. And I feel like this is something that happened with COVID. When COVID, well, COVID's still around, obviously, but people, a lot of writers I know said, it's pointless to write. There's so many problems in the world. Why am I writing a novel? Why am I writing a story? Why am I writing a book about creativity or whatever? It's just not important. I should become a doctor and solve, solve <laughs> these crises. But how can we recenter our creativity as 
important and the thing we are most likely that we are meant to do with our lives? Listen, humans are, um, I mean, we're a very strange species, right? I mean, we get this protection from change in our brains. We have physical responses that trigger, you know, hormones in our bodies when we are afraid on, or when we are happy. But I think that the unfortunate thing about the West world is part is intertwined with religion in a way that honestly reads the whole story in a in like a manipulative way, but it's all a lot about guilt, right? There is this sense of like, oh my God, I can't really be painting or writing because look at the world and this and that. But actually the true nature of, of humans is to progress and to thrive and to prosper without creativity in every sense, including the arts, we would not have become the civilization that we've made of ourselves, right? I mean, people would still be in in caves and people would not even have developed language. I mean, we have to understand how important language is, the conveyance of ideas, whether that is in a form of a novel or if it's a nonfiction book. It, these are the things that keep the world going forward. These are the things that actually you are always passing the torch onto someone else, even if you don't immediately know it. And I just feel that there is also a misconception. It's like, well, if I am not saving people in Africa with doctors without borders, or if I am not developing vaccines or whatever, then it's I'm not worth it, right? And so that's like an insecurity also that is unfortunately has been growing more and more in this day of digital and social media where people tend to compare themselves to other because if they wouldn't have the doctors and they wouldn't have the idea that there was somebody else doing more important job that, you know, better things at what they were doing, then they wouldn't have, you know, those thoughts, if that makes sense, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like in the era of the Renaissance, these guys didn't have Twitter. They de- and people were dying of plagues, right? And yeah. that was the, that was no seriously. I mean, it was like children would live like to five with luck, you know. And this was the most beautiful and fruitful time in history, where the Italian Renaissance in Florence. As I'm saying, like, we still talk about these guys, right? I mean, we talk about Michelangelo, we talk about Leonardo, we talk about Botticelli, we talk about Dante, we talk, you know, like, these are incredible people. And they were not saying, because the plague, we're all crying, and let's just hide ourselves in our houses and cry. That was not what they were saying or doing. On the contrary, a lot of them had very strong religious convictions. I don't know. I mean, I believe in God, but a lot of people don't. But they were, I mean, Michelangelo was like, I'm serving God with my work. And he ended up a very rich man, you know. And what he did was, I mean, anybody who has seen his work in person or in pictures, but better in person, well, he has to think that this guy had a power that was just 
way beyond what a man can do, you know? And creativity is important because beauty is important, because ideas are important, because expression of human beings, the whatever means it is, and again, it could be someone who's trading stock, it could be someone who is writing books, it could be someone who's making film. If all, all those things have a purpose. And it doesn't matter if you don't win the Oscar. It doesn't matter if the Pulitzer is not going to be given to you. There is a whole other level of impact with the work that creative people do. And it also is fulfilling for themselves. I'm sure that you love your podcast because it gives you an expression. And besides all the writing that you've done, this gives you another level of expression that is different and it's fun. And at the same time, it's of service to others. Hmm. So all these things have multiple complex layers that are just way, they're deeper than just saying, my job is not important because I'm not saving lives. Because then if everybody would save lives, then we wouldn't have anybody else to serve us food at restaurants. We wouldn't have farmers. So imagine, let's say everybody in the world tomorrow saves lives, right? And so what would happen to all the other occupations? We, didn't, we wouldn't have buildings because people are just saving lives. So we don't have architects and we don't have people who, you know, construction workers and things like that. So I get the guilt, but it's not justified. No, I love that. And it's, as you say, it's, it's about fulfillment, it's about human flourishing and creativity for its own sake, which absolutely is wonderful. Now, I do want to ask you about money because you work mm. with many financially successful artists and you reference many, both living and dead in the book. And I always use Picasso and <laughs> Van, Van Gogh and Picasso died, this sort of multimillionaire. His, his morals were questionable. <laughs> but many authors, whether they're writers or visual artists, or whatever struggle with this art versus money idea but how do you see the relationship between art and money and or business you know I think that the whole mess of the starving artist is romanticized for the wrong reasons and I believe that it's not serving anybody because as you said, we do have Van Gogh, who was a bipolar person who killed himself. So Van Gogh was, it, it's not even the fact that he didn't sell anything, it's the fact that he was crazy, right? Because like, we can utilize that same example today and say, well, this guy was a genius, but he jumped out of the window before he was able to sell his novel because he was not writing his mind. So we always say poor Van Gogh, he never sold anything, but then we don't talk about his mental illness. Why is that? Because people like to romanticize and stay in the pain and say the art is pure and the struggle is beautiful. And I think those are also mechanisms of defense for people to not do what they have to do, which is do all the work that is just goes beyond just making the art. And also, this I have said many times. Not everybody is an artist in the sense of not everybody has the talent to write a novel. Not everybody has the talent to compose a nice painting. Not everybody has the talent to create a wonderful film. And this is not to say you're not creative. This is to say that sometimes the idea to do something that you're not 100% equipped 
is also an excuse for you to say, well, and I'm not making money. That must be because I have to struggle because I chose this particular area. Because look, I know doctors who are terrible and they graduated barely and they don't make money. I know dentists who are broke. I know architects who you know, live paycheck by paycheck. So the struggle and the starving idea is not exclusive of artists. It has to do a whole lot more with, do I have a business mentality and am I good at what I do? Because I also do know of artists whose work is not necessarily outstanding, but they are such incredible business people and they have their greatest asset is their capacity to come up with ideas and to have a team who helps them execute them. And thus the paradox is that, well, they may not be great artists, but they are great business people. And I think wholeheartedly believe that everybody has a very special, unique gift and that that gift can be well-received in the world. Because look, I mean, honestly, the money is loaded as a concept, but money itself is neutral. It's not good or bad. It's not evil or beautiful. It is just a, it's a tool. It's a tool for people to pay their rents or their mortgages and feed themselves and their kids and pay for clothes, right? I mean, that's the other thing. If we would have stayed in the system of trade and barter and I'll give you peanuts and you give me potatoes, we would not have civilization either. We needed to have a form that actually backed up trade. So a lot of people are very, very confused about what money means that like if your art should be just pure and never tainted by money. I don't think any of the guys of the Renaissance was also worried about that. They just saw it as this is an incredible privilege that I have. And they had patrons and the Medici paid and they had no problem going there. And that doesn't mean that they were sellouts. No, that means they actually took the help so that they could actually benefit the world with what they did. And some of them were not rich, but they, regardless of that, they didn't have the handcuffs that we have developed in our culture with money. And that is something that people have to really work. I know it's not easy. I know it takes a whole lot of time. But there are tons of different tools out there to help you see things differently, to help you see that there are ways and that if something is commercially successful, that doesn't mean that it is it is a sellout or that it is bad. That's a whole different story. Picasso, like you said, was incredibly successfully commercial and because like people loved his work. But the most, I think the most interesting thing about Picasso is that he worked so consistently throughout his life until the day he died. Hmm. This man was really prolific, right? But but he was invested in that, you know. It was like, and I can tell you one thing: I know for sure, you can never get better if you don't do it over and over and over and over again, right? Like you can't really get better at what you do, your craft, the the discipline that you put into your writing or your art or your. It's a day in day out thing. And I, that is one thing I know 
There are no sort of like born genius. Well, maybe yes. Maybe there are people with incredible talent who can, you know, paint and and write music when they are four or five or whatever, right? I mean, we've got great examples and like, you know, contemporary, like Justin Bieber was playing that little piano when he was four and like, whatever. So that's fine. But that's only one person. Most people actually put an enormous amount of work in refining what they do. Mm. And when you actually put that amount of work in refining what you do, with guidance and help, obviously, and feedback, I see that I don't see any negative coming out of that. I see that there's got to be a point where actually it's going to pay back, mm. you know? But I mean, there are so many, this, this conversation could be for days, right? Because there are so many different factors to take into account. But I believe that people's desires and like what I said before, motivations, is what actually gets them forward. You know, it's like Picasso wanted to paint one and two canvases a day because it made him happy. And he had it within, right? He was doing what he wanted to do and it gave him enormous amount of satisfaction. It was a very driven from within passion. And that is the thing that people should strive always to have is like, I feel that I want to do this and I want to do it more and more because it gives me so much happiness and I'm good at it and I'm going to get better because I'm going to do it more. Mm, For sure. Now, one final question, because we're almost out of time. But in the book, you talk about questioning the status quo, taking risks, and also that the only constant is change. And as we're recording this towards the end of 2022, there's this real emergence of AI-assisted art tools like Dolly and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion, and a lot of discussion about how that's going to impact the art world, as well as the writing tools in, in the writing world. So how can creatives embrace change and technological progress and still improve their craft? Listen, the other day, somebody asked me a very similar question, a friend of mine, and we were having an informal conversation. And uh, I told him, look, artists, some very, a lot of different artists have been using technological tools that are very similar to what Dolly does and all that for a long time to create renderings, to have inspiration to see what happens when they recompose a figure in an image. When people in art history and our contemporary times invest whatever amount in buying a piece of art from an artist, whether that is, and I'm talking about a real piece of art, not an NFT, but I'm talking about something that you hang or you play somewhere. People are not buying the art alone. They're buying the artist. They're buying the history, the trials, the tribulations, their backgrounds, where they went to school, how many shows they've had, the things that they talk about, everything, because nothing is hidden anymore, right? There was a time where nobody knew who these guys were, like they lived in their studios and it was all kind of like there was a wall and there was a shield and now everything is online, the guys, their resume. So that part, I don't get too worried about because... People buy the artists. Now, mm. with writing, I also take issue with that because although the writer sometimes can be a little bit more separated of the process, not of the process, but of the selling part, if, if that makes sense. Like, 
you're a great artist or you're a great writer, the writers are not necessarily having exhibitions every two months and they are not necessarily in every art fair hanging and things like that. So it's a different thing. But with the, the way I see it with writing tools is that there is no computer that can have the experiences that you have had. There's no computer that can actually gone through your childhood, your spiritual awakenings, if you had any, the pains of giving birth, the things that you saw the morning that you found your soulmate. And I, I mean, I see it a little bit of a lack of self-esteem for anybody to think that a writing machine is going to be better than them. It's going to be better than a creature from the universe who's here is breathing, is alive, is full of soul. I'm very, very always kind of invested in this idea that there is spirit, that we are moved because we are alive and there is a soul and there is something inside of us that gives us intuition, inspiration, guides us. So I hope that people who are listening are open to these ideas because that really is what makes us human and who we are and our feelings and emotions, which no computer can ever replicate. Mm, Well, I also think what you said about the visual artists and putting themselves out there. I mean, what you're doing, you have a book, How Creativity Rules the World, and you're here on this podcast, You're Being Maria. And I do that with this show and I have another podcast. And I, I think by having our voices, showing our work and, and our process, we can put that human artist into the work. So I think as with writing, as with visual art, I think writers also are selling the artist and the author behind the creative work as as well. So I love that. Thank you so much. And so we're out of time. Tell people where can they find you and your book online? Yes. So my website is Maria Brito, B-R-I-T-O.com. And my book is called How Creativity Rules the World. It is available on Amazon Book Depository. If you'd like to have it delivered anywhere in the world that Amazon does not serve. If you're in the United States and you want to benefit the independent bookstores, it's on a bookshop. It's also Barnes Noble. So There is an incredible host of places (laughs) where you can find the book. It is in three formats. It's hardcover, it's uh, ebook, and audio. But I really... read the audio? Did you read it? I did. I did. I did. I did read the audio, but I would always encourage you to get um, a written version because at the end of each chapter, there are exercises that I encourage people to take to digest, in a way to digest what they've learned in the chapter, but also is to get their creative juices going in different directions. So I call them alchemy labs because I think that's where the magic happens. That's where you turn your ideas into gold. And as you know, Joanna, really very little happens if we don't take some action. So the fact that you're picking up a notebook and a pen and writing things down is one of the ways to create a material record of something that you just learned and you're digesting. That's why writing is so powerful. I have a whole chapter in the book about writing and about why it is so much better to do this type of exercises with a pen and a paper rather than typing 
because it really stimulates so much of your neural networks and also your connections between your hand and your thinking and paying attention at a specific time, making you very aware of the here and now. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Maria. That was great. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Joanne. I really love this time with you. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Maria and I definitely feel that leaning into my curiosity is what keeps me creative and productive and there is always more to learn and experiment with. So let me know what you think. Leave a comment on the show notes or the YouTube channel or tweet me at The Creative Pen. Next week, it's back to the writing craft as I talk about writing beginnings with Shane Miller and we disagree over prologues. (laughs) which I know is always a contentious issue for fiction readers and writers. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.